Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thank you for joining us today. This is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Again, I'm CEO of Paces Connection. Um, Like we discussed last week, we're really going to focus this entire month on um, our national um, month of child abuse prevention. And today we're going to talk about our institutional level of influence. Um, We've really outlined how Bronfenbrenner has done a great job of illustrating how systems impact children and families and um, the individual's development. And so we're gonna continue that conversation um, today and think through how policies and institutions impact children and families and create conditions where um, children are more susceptible to abuse and neglect. So I want to take this time to introduce my co-host, Matthew Portell. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to uh, be back for another episode. Uh, As a reminder, I am the Director of Communities uh, with Paces Connection, uh, and I've just recently finished over a full month. So I'm really excited to be uh, settling into this awesome uh, organization and to be more involved in this podcast. Thank you. We're definitely excited to have you a part of the team So um, today we're going to focus, again, like I said, on that institutional level of focus. Um, In the last session, we talked about community and community level influences and conditions. And we really outlined in that last session the element of of crime and how we have uh, encountered mass incarceration in some communities, how uh, housing discrimination has played a role in redlining has really created communities that are underserved and disenfranchised and that this uh, then leads to issues of crime and poverty. Uh, And then that it then influences how we view these communities um, when we think through kind of the values and norms that we have set for our society. Uh, And so we are gonna be able to talk about those types of things today with our um, fabulous guests, Judge Sheila Calloway and Matthew, I'll let you introduce the judge. So I, I have had the honor of, of communicating with Judge Calloway many times. Um, and so I, I feel that she is uh, an expert in this field. So Judge Calloway has served as a juvenile court judge uh, since September of 2014. But prior to that, she was a juvenile court magistrate um, for nearly 10 years. And prior to that, she was a public defender in both the adult and juvenile divisions from 1994 to 2003. Um, She's originally from Louisville, Kentucky, but she attended uh, undergraduate uh, and law school at Vanderbilt University. And so we are so honored to have her on uh, this show. Judge Calloway, how are you? Welcome. And let our listeners know anything that they need to know about you. Awesome. Thank you, Matthew, for that wonderful introduction. And thank you, Ingrid, for this opportunity to speak with you all and all of your listeners on the podcast. Um, You know, I absolutely love the job that I'm working in now as the juvenile court judge in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, You know, coming from Louisville, Kentucky, I grew up in a what I used to believe as I was growing up a dysfunctional family. 
um, because I never got to hang out with my friends as much as everybody else did. My parents made me like um, have dinner time with them and, you know, Friday nights when all my friends are going to the games, I had to go to family Friday night dinner out. And um, I never realized how fortunate I was until I left home and worked in the public defender's office. And it was then when it hit me how functional my family was and the things that they supported and the values that they brought to me. For instance, there was absolutely never any question about whether I was going to go to college. It was assumed that we were going to college. The question just was, which college are you going to? And it had to be a top college. They were not going to um, settle for anything else. And those were things that my parents instilled in me. Um, The importance of education, the importance of a spiritual background, the importance of family um, and using a village. And, you know, if I got in trouble at school, by God, my mom and daddy knew it. And before I hit that door, they were already talking about it. So it's those things and those experiences that when I started in the public defender's office and met the other side of of the world um, where people did not have parents who understood the importance of education, people who did not have meals every day, who did not have um, the opportunity to go wherever they wanted to go when they needed to go, who did not have employment skills, who did not have, you know, all of the things that I thought just came natural to people. Um, that's when I said, I've got to do something and to make sure that everyone that I come in contact with that comes to the system has that same chance and opportunity that I had. And, you know, that's why I love being in juvenile court and I love being able to positively influence the children and the families that we work with, explaining to them how important um, it is that we give our children a early start and with positive things that we, you know, combat any adverse childhood experiences and teach resiliency for all of our children and teach them how they can make a difference and how they can be successful. And so that's just a little about who I am and why I do what I do. Yeah, I just listening to you, I definitely connect with some of the things you said. We have similar backgrounds besides being Vanderbilt alumna. Um, I also came into the work that I'm doing through the juvenile justice uh, system as I work with children who were incarcerated. And that brought me to this work because I was very interested in why um, so many African-American children were represented in our juvenile justice system here in Tennessee. And we do have a Tennessee connection on this, this episode for sure. Um, But my experiences with the Department of Children's Services, which housed our juvenile justice system at the time, uh, really helped me to understand um, my own bias um, when it came to parents and the conditions that both parents and children were dealing with. Um, in, in my case, it was really focused on on racism. And I didn't know how I had a my own racial bias and saw the struggles of uh, African-American parents when it came to the juvenile justice system as a a issue of bad parenting. And um, it wasn't until I went to Vanderbilt and and, um, really did a lot of research and came across the ACEs study and 
um, research on historical trauma that I began to kind of conceptualize that these conditions that are created that parents have to live in that then kind of warp parenting um, uh, as they kind of prepare their children for racist environments or for poverty. So it's not just race. There's a lot of intersection there. And so I think, um, you know, just listening to what you're saying here is really um, making me see that institutions really play a huge role in how our children's lives are shaped. And so institutions will determine if a child gets help versus um, is punished, if families get help versus are they criminalized. And so, um, you know, thank you for giving that that background. And, and also, you know, going back to our first couple of episodes this month, we've really been able to draw a very clear understanding that there are different systems at play when we look at how children develop. And um, this system that Ron from Brenner would call the exosystem is a very powerful system. It includes all of our institutions, um, our child welfare system, our juvenile justice system, and definitely our um, you know overall criminal justice system, not you know for also for adults. And um, and then of course it includes the media, media assault. So even how we view people based on the stories that we're told or the movies that we watch, um, it's just a very powerful system. And because it's indirect, we often do not see how it shapes a, a child's development or a family's, um, you know, impacts families. But systems like juvenile justice and their child welfare system um, shape parents and parenting and have and do currently and have historically. And so I think that um, this is going to be a very interesting conversation as we talk about all of the moving parts that are there. Um, so I do want to know, you know, how do you feel when, you know, in your role when it comes to um, the historical impact of juvenile justice um, when it comes to all children and families, but uh, especially around issues of race and poverty? You know, I, I have to say, when I first became the juvenile court judge, it was my mission and my goal to decrease or eliminate the disparity numbers in the justice system. And, I, you know, I was 100 percent all about that. I had in my mind the ways it was going to work and how I was going to get it done. And, you know, unfortunately, to this day, our our disparity numbers are probably even more distinct now than they were before. And, you know, I, I worked a lot. And one of the reasons I know Matthew so well, we worked a lot in the metro school system on um, a program called Passage, Positive and Safe Schools Advancing Greater Equity. And one of the goals was to decrease the disparities in discipline in the school system. And, you know, what we, after a couple of years, realized what we were doing is we were lowering the number of discipline issues and disciplinary write-ups and suspensions and expulsions, but the, the lower we went on that side, the higher we went on the disparities. And so it's the same in the justice system. And so I've done all these wonderful programs of diverting children out of the system. So we're not prosecuting as many of you um, from doing restorative justice programs where we're sending um, higher level felony charges to a nonprofit organization that's bringing 
you know, victims and, and offenders together so that they can work through what happened and um, instead of prosecuting the normal systems way. And all of this work that, you know, I thought was going to help um, change that disparity has absolutely not done that. And what I see now is instead of having, you know, 50, 60 youth in our detention facility, where 80% of them were, were black and brown kids and 20% were, were um, white children. Now I have, you know, 30 to 40 youth in the, in the detention facilities and 90%, 99, 95% on a given day are um, black and brown youth and a very small portion that come in are white. And so it's something that bothers me on each and every, you know, everything, every piece of my bone, it just bothers me. How can we make changes to a historical system that really was meant to bring down brown and black people um, in general. And how does, you know, the, all of the innovative programs I think we're doing, how is it not making a difference? And so I started to really look at where it starts. And you think about the child welfare system, you know, people always ask me about, what do you do about the school to prison pipeline? And I'd say, if I start with the school to prison pipeline, then I'm missing a whole lot. So we have to start from the crib or, you know, from pre-birth to the, the prison pipeline. It doesn't start at the school. It starts literally at pregnancy in some cases. And you think about um, issues such as prenatal care and people who have access to good prenatal care. Like I had a $20 baby is what I like to tell people because I had wonderful insurance. I went to my very first, first um, checkup, found out I was pregnant, had to pay $20 for that copay. Then everything else was free. Everything. And I had a high risk pregnancy because of some issues within my body. I had to have a C-section and everything. $20. So you take because I have, you know, a job that has insurance, you take that same experience from someone who has a job that doesn't provide insurance, that um, if they do provide insurance, provides very, very, very little insurance, that they cannot keep going back to the doctor because it comes out of their pocket. So they're going to have a different prenatal experience than someone who has does. And so when you start at that point, and then past birth, if that child, if, you know, if my child had been born with some type of illness or anything, I would have been able to have the ability to take them to the pediatrician any day that I needed to. If my pediatrician said, I only have an appointment on this day, can you come? Yes, I can, because I can go to my employer or, you know, as of now, I am the employer and say, I'm taking time off to go take care of my child. The people that come through the system don't have that luxury. And so when they are not able to keep that doctor's appointment, then they're brought to the light of the child welfare system. And it's not about they're not given an opportunity to really go to the doctor when they can, when they can afford, when they can take off work, when they have money for a copay. It's more about they're being neglectful to their child. And so we're going to start interfering in that family's life. 
And then once we start interfering in that family's life, then any little thing that happens to that child, we will, we will label as neglect or abuse. So I say this all the time. I use this story. Um, you have two separate families, one of them living in an affluent part of town, one of them living in a um, public housing area. They're doing this, raising the children the same way. Let's say it's a toddler who they have sleeping in the bed with them. That happens. It happens on, no matter wh- where you are. At some point, your toddler going to climb and sleep in the bed with you because you don't feel like getting up in the middle of the night, whatever. That happens to all of us. So let's just say that toddler rolls off the bed in the middle of the night and they're living in an affluent part of town. They're going to roll off. They're going to maybe get the bump on their head, maybe. But they're going to roll off into some nice carpeted, carpet, nice atmosphere. It's going to be okay. You're in the other part of town and you're going to roll off on your public housing to a concrete floor that might be covered up with the rug that I can put down. But it's not going to be the nice, soft, cushiony rug that, uh, that happens over in the fluent part, right? And so you have the same accident and probably the same bumps and bruises, but let's both go to the hospital. On the affluent side of the town, I'm going to a nice hospital um, or a hospital that has more better resources, right? On the not so affluent side of town, I'm going to a hospital that doesn't, that is more open for folks who don't have insurance. Let me say it that way. And doesn't have the same resources. So in Nashville, what happens if I go to the Vanderbilt Hospital in the affluent neighborhoods, I say what happened, they say, okay, and more than likely, there's not a referral to a welfare system. It's more of a, okay, that's an accident. Be careful. Don't let your toddler sleep with you anymore and, you know, use these whatever restrictions, right? If I'm, if I'm in the family that had to do this from a um, public housing area, and I go to the hospital that doesn't have the same resources, they send me and my child to the Vanderbilt Hospital. So I'm already leaving my atmosphere, leaving my comfort of my neighborhood, doctor's hospital. I'm going on another side of town. There's been some transition. What's going on with my spirit in that middle of that transition? What's happening to me? What's happening to my child? what's going on. And then when I get to that hospital, I may not act the same way or respond to your questions the same way that that person who lived on that side of town was able to respond. Whether it's I'm a little more agitated because this is the second spot I've been at and I don't know what's going on with my child, or maybe I'm just nonchalant because, well, heck, if they had time to bring my child over here, then it must not be that serious. And I'm not acting as, but I'm not acting the way you think I should act. And so what happens is there's an immediate call to job welfare system. That's how we start the cradle to prison pipeline. And that's how our systems are designed to not be effective for folks that it wasn't made for. And it's not that, you know, when I say these things, it's not that I'm saying these individual doctors or individual you know, nurses are automatically um, discriminatory or racist or anything like that. They work in a system that that is how it operates. 
And we're all part of that system. And until we take a good hard look at from the cradle to the prison, how we operate these, these systems, we're not going to get a difference in the disparity marks. Well, and it makes me think too, and we had mentioned this um, in a previous episode around the RISE Center's work and even the socio-ecological model that Ingrid was talking about. When we're talking about these interactive layers of trauma and healing, when we're talking about the historical context and you know, we've started at the family and we're moving out and we will get to that point. And I think what I keep hearing is, yes, those play a role, but eventually we have to look at the historical context, right? We have to look at what has been in place for hundreds of years that has continued to have an impact on communities to this point. And I even think to, to your point of what you said about when somebody were to go to a doctor, how people perceive it, that happens in schools every day. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a perception that happens in schools and what families do and how families handle situations and how families respond um, as being abuse when really it's just the perception, right? And I think that these are the layers that we're talking about. So, so let's get into, because I think we want to get deep into these policies, right? Because we're talking about the systematic pieces. So how do policies right now, or even in the past, impact children and families, um, both negatively and positively? What, what have you seen in the policy front um, that, have, that have had a historical context or current context? Absolutely. Um, there are so many things that when you look at systems, whether it's the justice system or the school system, um, you look at what runs those systems and it's policies, right? And so, you know, in the court system, we have these policies that require um, court costs or fees or fines. And who does that hurt? And then, you know, there's there's rules and laws and policies that say, if you don't pay these court costs and court fees, what can happen to you? You know, there are literally, you know, we're not supposed to have debtors prisons, but we operate those when people aren't able to pay certain costs and fees and fines, then we as a court can hold that against that person, whether that's a violation of probation or a contempt of court, a charge. So we're literally criminalizing their inability to pay for something. And that is part of a policy that literally keeps people um, down. You know, I think about um, the school system and some of their um, policies on who can be um, disciplined or, or who can, can receive um, some type of suspension or expulsions. And, you know, the, the catchphrase that always used to get me that changed with our work with passage, but there was still a, a, a different phrase for it that was used in the same way. And so when a, a teacher or a principal can um, discipline someone for conduct unbecoming, what is that? Who decides what's the becoming conduct? What is a definition of conduct unbecoming? And so what you're telling some people, you know, and I think, I'm not sure Matthew, you gave the example or someone that I heard talking from a school system that said, this child that comes to school and screams and yells at everybody. 
And that's how they conversate. And so when you ask them a question, their, their voice is already magnified in their answer. And so some people in the school say, that's disrespectful, that's not appropriate, that's not how we talk. But when you have a school personnel that goes to that home, and then they see that there's 10 people in the house, and everybody to get heard has to yell at each other so that I can, you can hear me, what does that child learn? The child learns to be heard, I must yell. And so when I go to school, I need to be heard, so I'm going to yell. But then a teacher says, that's conduct unbecoming. What are we doing? So we're making these policies that are very um, subjective in nature and people can change a child's life by some of these ill-written policies. Yeah, and this really brings up how, you know, much of, of a role culture plays in this. And so, and, and you know, the whole purpose of this podcast is really to outline how culture is driven really by adverse conditions and positive conditions. And so these cultural differences are not so much about race as they are about environments. And, and that's a perfect example on an individual level of, you know, having a loud household. And then I come out of that household and go to, and go to school. And then I'm, I'm yelling. And therefore there's a mismatch between these two institutions, the home and the school um, that then leads to, to problems. And these issues of culture are largely driven by policies that would even make it uh, an issue of why you have 10 people in a home. There's, there's, that's that, you know, that undercurrent of these uh, institutions that have really shaped our society um, in many different ways that people are just not aware of, even to the point of where someone lives, how many people live in the house with them, what school they go to, whether or not their school is fully funded or not, um, what hospital they they interact with. Um, all of this is driven largely by policy. And that's why the exosystem is such a powerful system that um, people are not aware that it really has a real impact on their day-to-day lives. Um, when you were talking, it made me really think about how um, we really need to have discussions around the differences in culture, but through a different lens. So right now we're beginning to have conversations about culture, right? We're saying, oh, these groups act differently because of these things, but really not adding that context of racism and how we view people who are living in poverty. Um, and it's largely driven by these beliefs and values that are deeply rooted in our history, right? And so um, we are going to go to break soon, but I wanna be clear about, you know, because as we move into deeper conversations about the criminal justice system specifically, especially when we move into the second half, um, there's so much that is tied to this issue of criminal justice that is a layover from slavery. Um, and beyond slavery, also just the economic exploitation of people of color. Uh, so, you know, our belief that certain people should be working for free, um, that they should uh, 
be in that, you know, this is also tied to our strict beliefs around control of certain groups behavior. Um, and all, all of this is tied into the school setting and definitely into criminal justice. Uh, and so that is just so compelling to me to be able to understand that the things that we're dealing with today in the school system and the uh, criminal justice system, uh, you know, even when we say, you know, um, school to prison pipeline, what we're talking about is a very clear uh, focused narrative that has been created that Black people are more likely to be criminals, um, that, um, you know, Black people, especially Black boys, need strict control, that it's okay to be physical with them because, um, other, you know, because there's an issue around uh, the belief that Black people are less intelligent, therefore need more physical handling as opposed to uh, talking to. Uh, all of this is playing into how parents parent, and it's also playing into how we view these groups and the policies that we've created specifically for them, like convict leasing, um, mass incarceration. All of this is tied together. So um, I want to kind of, I want to take a break now. And so what we'll do is when we come back uh, for the second half, we'll talk a little bit more about digging into what are the solutions and uh, kind of um, you know, peeling back the layers of this onion around how the past ties to the beliefs that we have around criminal behavior in our criminal justice system and um, all of these other very specific issues when it comes to the Black and Latino communities. So we'll be back in just a moment. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. Back again, this is History, Culture, Trauma. Um, before the break, we were talking with Judge Sheila Calloway, who is um, a juvenile justice judge in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And um, we really kind of talk through how policies are um, really the undercurrent of a lot of the issues that um, children and families face. And in the second half, we're going to jump into a couple of things. First, um, really thinking through how policies have created conditions that have um, made children more susceptible to abuse and neglect, and also what the solutions are. So um, we were talking before about history and how it's relevant today. And so I gave an example of slavery, but we have so much there 
economic exploitation of immigrants, slavery, indigenous um, peoples and, and land theft. And, um, and there's just a lot there that brings us to current day issues of mass incarceration. Uh, one of these issues among many is the war on drugs. Obviously, um, we have, you know, the past of the three strikes rules around, around drugs that was obviously targeted uh, to certain groups. Um, our understanding that uh, people who are incarcerated can then be made to work for free or for very little. Um, and then, of course, the uh, narrative that we have that um, some cultures, aka racial groups, are, are criminalized because of the trauma that they've experienced. So I definitely want to ask you, um, Judge Calloway, uh, your feels about that. And then I'll um, leave it up to Matthew to ask you some more questions about the work that you're doing in Nashville. So Ingrid, you just opened up a huge box of stuff for me to talk about. <laughs> and I'm not sure if I have, uh, I could literally have this conversation for a good two days. Uh, but, you know, when you think about the history, and, I, and I'll start just with the 13th Amendment. And, you know, the 13th Amendment, um, although it got rid of slavery and involuntary servitude, there was a huge exception, except as punishment for crime, where uh, the party shall have been duly convicted. And so as early as when the 13th Amendment was passed, it gave people the right to have a slave or involuntary service for someone who was convicted of a crime. And so for, of course, particularly for um, places like um, in the South, when um, that was what was accepted and what was um, the driver of the economy in the South was people working as slaves. When the 13th Amendment got passed, they had to come up with a system that would allow them to still have their economic base and to have that workforce and to have that free labor. And so what else to do was to criminalize things that we can charge, particularly folks in a Black community for, and get our free labor. And so when you look at our history of a nation, and that's how the, what we call the justice system really started, how is that just? And so I'm, I'm trying to be very careful to no longer call it a justice system. It is not a criminal justice system. It is clearly a criminal system. And it is absolutely doing what it was designed to do. It was designed to make criminals out of a certain sector of our community so that we could have free labor. And that's what we have. And what has happened is the free labor part isn't as much of a um, need anymore. And so we're not looking at it as free labor, but we are still looking at making people criminal for behaviors that probably in any other circumstances would not have been criminalized. And so I, you know, I laugh, I have been on so many um, meetings and trips about how do we stop the opioid crisis and how, and it's a crisis, right? How do we make sure that we're treating the opioid abusers or users 
are addicts in a, in a good and just system. Well, the reason that we do it for the opioid crisis is because of who is affected by the opioid crisis. And so you go back to the, the late 80s, the early 90s, when we had, we didn't have a cocaine crisis. We had a war on drugs because the people who were using cocaine were of a, um, were minority folks, were majority Black people were using um, crack, right? And so that becomes a war on judge. And when you make it a war on judge, when you make it a, a, um, a, a type of crime that's going to not fix addictions, that's not going to help people to get better, not going to try to help them to um, move from um, the life of crack, and what you're doing is criminalizing it, you are increasing the amount of crime that happens in these neighborhoods. And so we are literally making criminals out of folks who may have gotten addicted to drugs. But now that we have opioids and the people who are using opioids are not minority folks, then all of a sudden it's a crisis and we can't just lock people away for it. We have to provide them resources. We have so many federal funds that have been provided to different states to resolve the opioid crisis that never, ever happened for our war on drugs. And that's the historical basis that we have to recognize. And so what happened in the early 80s, 90s, when you have these war on drugs, you have particularly Black men being removed from their families and being locked up for lengthy sentences. And so you have a large young folks, black kids who are being brought up in families and in neighborhoods without men role models, right? And so then all of a sudden, and, and, and to tell a little about the history of the juvenile courts, you know, in the 1800s, we were locking up kids and sentencing them to death, eight-year-olds that were getting the death penalty being treated like the adults. And there were some three ladies in Chicago who said, this is crazy. Why are we doing this to these kids? They not only um, shouldn't be treated this way, they have, um, don't have the thought process to, to make these decisions like this. But not only that, they have the capability of changing if we give them a chance. And so we knew that in the early 1800s, we knew that. And that's what we were doing. We had our first juvenile courts in the early 1900s, about 1920-something. All states, except for a few, maybe three, had a juvenile court system. And we were operating under the understanding, the absolute true understanding, that our youth minds don't develop until they're about 25 years old, right? And they have the ability to change and to re be treated and rehabilitated. They don't need to be treated like adults. And so we were doing really, really well until we started taking all these men out of their homes. And we started locking them up for drug offenses, not for violent offenses, but for drug offenses. And so they're in the home not knowing how to live as young men or what to do. And so they're going out and discovering things and starting to do more serious crimes. And so then 
we label them as super predators. And when we start that label in the early 1900s, excuse me, in the early 1990s, sorry, in the 1990s, when we start labeling our children as super predators, then we start changing legislation to say, now we should be treating them as adults. Now we should be locking them up and we should lock them up for, for life. And what we absolutely know is we hit a peak of juvenile crime like in 1994, 1995. And then since then, it has been a steady decline of juveniles committing serious crimes. But yet, every news story you, you see about a juvenile is about someone who's done a serious crime. I could go all year long and have maybe five news stories about five youth who did something serious. But that whole entire year, I have thousands of youth who may have gotten in little trouble, but we've diverted them from the system. They never come back into the system, but you never ever hear about those successes because we as a society are focused on that five. Yeah. And what we literally are saying is because of these five, juvenile, juvenile crime is at an all-time high and we're doing horrible. But the stats and the studies do not show that and do not say the thing. So we have so many issues that I could dwell into that start with how we started our systems, um, how we criminalize things that never should have been criminalized, how we have destroyed the family and the family backbone and the family system, which means how we have caused children to start looking into the life of crime. And now we're trying to treat them as adults again. In fact, it's such a small, minute part of our system that we should treat them in better ways and then we can save them. But we're not trying to do that. Yeah, there's so much there and and the history of it is very compelling. And even when you were talking, I was thinking about George Sinney, who's the youngest person to be executed in America at just 14 um, and uh, a young black um, teenager. And, um, and then of course, during that time for the war on drugs, there was mass transition of black children, black and Latino children into the child welfare system, which is what we call Jane Crow during that time. So as black men were being incarcerated, um, there, the homes where black women were, um, largely single mothers during this time, were considered, you know, they were not they were not considered fit mothers, and their children were taken into the child welfare system, and we have um, a cycle that had reemerged from the past with this criminal narrative that it's not um, addiction, it's not societal issues, it's because your skin is darker, and that's criminal enough, and that harkens back to reconstruction once slavery was over, which is when mass incarceration began the year after slavery ended, um, where it was illegal just to be black, right? It was illegal to be um, outside after curfew. It was illegal to be standing in spaces where there were more than three of you gathered. It was illegal to um, have a debt. Um, and it was, you know, in some areas it was illegal to be a stay-at-home mother. So whenever there was domestic labor that was in short supply, 
they would change policies to say that Black mothers would have to start working in homes. Um, and so this is just, um, you know, policy has been there every step of the way when we think about both successes and failures um, in this systemic, um, in, you know, these systems of influence on children and families. And far too often and very obviously, this has been an issue that has impacted both poor people of all races and Black, Latino, and Indigenous people more than any anything else. Um, Matthew, I know that you want to kind of dig into what the judge is doing um, in Nashville and provide our audience with kind of what's working for us. I do. And, and I think that there's a lot that resonated with me of what you said. And I think we know history. We know what is happening. And, you know, we have people who don't want us to talk about history, especially in our education system, there's reasons why um, that we're that that there's laws being passed to not talk about those things. But I also think now we know the impact of historical and the intergenerational transmission of trauma and the epigenetic studies. We know these things, and so it's at what point will the 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 science that we know in the historical context will take the precedence of decision making and policy making because. We know more now than we've ever known. Um, and if we really do want to be better, um, then we have to do better. And I think that's what we want to talk. That's what I want to know more about, Judge. What are some things that you see that have been outlined? And you, you already admitted, like, I've tried to do some things. We had great programs, but it didn't work. But what are some things, maybe not even locally here in Nashville, but on a national scale that you are seeing that are disrupting these systems um, for the sake of um, moving forward. Absolutely. I, you know, as, as much as I look at our system, I say, oh, is it ever going to change? There are definitely a lot of victories that we've had. Um, and I'll say, you know, locally, we have had some victories. Um, you know, when I, I look at the number of youth that we used to um, literally lock up from schools, um, particularly children that were under 12 years old, we were locking under 12 year olds up in our system on a regular basis. And now it's almost unheard of that we're doing that because we have brought in um, a group of people to talk about these issues. Um, police officers, um, school resource officers, principals, um, juvenile court, mental health providers to come to the table and say, it is just not appropriate to lock up a, 12 under, a child under 12 years old. That is so psychologically damaging. And so we don't do that. Um, I think there are some times it has happened um, recently, but it's not, it is more of the absolute outlier than it is um, something that normally happens. And so, um, so we've really changed the trajectory on that. And I appreciate that. Um, within Davidson County, the things that we've done is as a court, we are literally diverting so many youth out of the system. So when I started in 2014 till now, we have increased our diversions of our youth out of the system up to about 70%. So literally these cases that are being referred to juvenile court, we are making an active decision to say, we are not prosecuting this case. Now what we do instead is we send that child or that child's case to our community partners where they can provide whatever services we were going to give. It, it shouldn't come to the court system. It should be in our community. 
And so these community providers are saying, let's take these children and see, you know, the issues that they were brought to the system and help them with that. Let's give them some mentoring. Let's give them some conflict resolution. Let's give them whatever it is that they need and not put them in the, in, back in the, in the court system. So literally, since we have been diverting these youth out of our system, um, each year it's at least 2,000 to 3,000 that we're diverting out of the system. Of those, the numbers are showing that we are having less than 8% recidivism rate. So less than 8% of those youth are coming back into the system for a subsequent charge. And we've been following it every two years. And the more we've done, the more, the more years we're adding on to that. But that recidivism rate is as low as 8%. That is superb. That means we are absolutely working with our communities and keeping youth out of the system. And that's helping. And then, you know, nationwide, there is a push for all communities to start all courts, um, particularly in the juvenile divisions, to do more diversions out of the system. I'm part of a probation systems review for the National Council of Juvenile Court and Family Judges. And that's number one thing that we are, they are asking us to do is don't put the, all these kids on probation. They don't need to be under court supervision. They need to be learning how to act appropriately in the communities that they live. And so let the communities do that. And that's happening on a nationwide basis. There are also a push to do more restorative justice where there is a, a absolute opportunity to change the way we look at the criminal system. And so instead of what, who did the crime, what did they do, and how much punishment should they get? The questions are now becoming what, excuse me, what the questions are now becoming, what's happened, what was the harm, how do we fix that harm, and whose responsibility is it for fixing that harm? And you're bringing people together. You're making it less of an adversarial system where someone says, they did it, I want them to serve this. And you're making it more of a um, cooperative type system where we can work together and figure out how one, this person who caused the offense can be held accountable for the offense that they caused and so that they don't do it again. And so we're protecting the person that was harmed and we can help restore that person. And so there's a push, you know, we have a wonderful pilot program in Davidson County for a pilot, just, for a pilot program for restorative justice. And of the youth that have gone through the restorative justice pilot program, only two of them have picked up subsequent charges after that. That's amazing. That is amazing. And it's something that we know can help to change a system. And so if we take that and we multiply it, you know, we're, we're starting to do more restorative programs within the schools as well, which is a absolute beautiful thing to happen. Because if they're doing it in the schools and we're helping them to um, learn appropriate behaviors, be held accountable for the things they're doing, and learning empathy for one another in a school setting, then imagine what the, they can do in the community. So those are some of the things that we are doing that is absolutely making a difference. And I know that as we keep working on these programs, keep working on these systems, that we will definitely be able to make some changes.
You know, that makes me think of a, a quote um, that I, I accidentally said one day. Um, and then I, I thought I really thought deeply about it. And it was that you can't punish current historical trauma out of anyone, but you can create and extend trauma into people. And I think that's what I hear you saying, that we're trying in a systematic way, you are, um, to stop that cycle of historical trauma and the use of the justice judicial system or the judicial system or the incarceration system, however you want to use it. But you're trying to stop that, that, that historical context. And, and I, I know what, what I hear you saying about schools and the role that schools play within the concept of the judicial system and the concept of uh, the Department of Children's Services. It's this massive uh, intertwining of, of uh, communication that isn't always effective. And, and I will say I was very uh, proud to see you on our news just last week. Um, calling out the Department of Children's Services for allowing kids to sleep in state offices and then reporting them when they leave the office that they were forced to sleep in. And so I think you're going above, you're going beyond just your role as a judge, but you're seeing these systematic issues as a whole. So I know we don't have long, but if I'm curious to know what was how did you find that stance and 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 stepping into that space of saying this can't happen anymore? So you know this had been happening for a while, and but it, unfortunately it's getting worse. And what's happening is we're removing children from homes which we are determining are not appropriate because whatever reason, and the parents aren't taking them, and then we're bringing them into the the system and the foster care system. But what's been happening is we don't have a whole lot of foster parents nor do we have a lot of residential placements to house these youth. And so we're bringing them into the system because they're being neglected or abused by parents. And we're bringing them into the system where we're saying, unfortunately, we ain't got nowhere for you to go. So you just sit in this office all day and all night until we find an appropriate placement. So what, who's, a, that's the same it's abuse. It's neglect. If a parent were to do that to their child, I would remove them. And so why is it appropriate that we as a state agency are doing the same thing? And if I'm a child and I'm 13 years old, you got me in this home, you got me in this office. I'm not necessarily going to school because you can't work out the arrangements. I don't have anywhere to go at night. And you tell me I just have to sit here with my caseworker. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to go to the restroom and then when I lead to the restaurant, I'm going to go out the back door because I can do better by myself in the street or back with my parents. It wasn't that neglectful in my parents. House. At least I know that who they are. I don't know these people in this office. And so when that was happening, we report them missing, we report them as runaway. Occasionally people would, you know, kids would tear up the office because they're frustrated because they're sitting there all day. And so we would charge them with vandalism. And then you arrest them and bring them to me and expect me to hold them to further their trauma. We're not doing that anymore. I definitely don't believe that that's appropriate. I'd rather put them back into their homes. And so we have got to reverse that cycle of trauma that we as a system continuously do for the, to our children. And that's why I'm happy to, to speak out. Yes, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a great episode. Um, 
and thank our audience for um, listening. And I think that this conversation is really going to push us into a very good understanding when we have our next session that's really going to be focused on these beliefs and values that we have that drive policy and drive communities and drive family um, stress and, and, and trauma. So thank you for joining us. This has been History, Culture, Trauma, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.